0: Why don't you tell us a bit about who you are and how you started your organization and what kind of work you do? Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, my name
1: is Spencer Hawkswell. I'm, uh, I'm the CEO at, at Theracil, a uh, patient rights advocate and a lobbyist. Um, the organization, uh, I, I, I started it about two years ago with uh, Bruce Tobin. He was the founder of Theracil. Um, when I met him, it was a web page and a court case. Um, he was going to sue the government of Canada to see if he could get one or two of his patients access to psilocybin. Um, and I think he would have won the case. However, he was at a stage where he had fundraised fundraise about $100,000 to get it started. Um, there wasn't much news as far as what he was doing and psychedelics were really still not quite mainstream. Um, so I had just read, I think, How to Change Your Mind and growing up, I Loved psychedelics and I still do. Um, My mom had been a palliative care nurse and uh, had encouraged me to go into this field to support the people who were dying or who had addiction and needed something for their treatment resistant depression and anxiety. Um, And so showing her the John Hopkins study that was showing psilocybin was like 80% effective after one dose. It was like, whoa, there's something there. And certainly for my own personal use, I was like, you know, that's not random. That's not like, I know what's happening. So um, we, I started working with Bruce for free for a couple months and I showed him this plan to put together a nonprofit um, and change the idea a little bit away from court, away from just relying on the court system and instead uh, to lobby and encourage the government to do the right thing. And it was all on the idea that, you know, we have a a health minister in Canada who is allowed to exempt any person from any of the drug laws. And this is exactly what happened back in the early 2000s when our health minister, Alan Rock at the time, granted the first couple AIDS patients legal access to cannabis. Um, So we just thought, well, let's recreate the exact same thing. Here we have equally as deserving Canadians with terminal diagnoses in urgent need of psilocybin. Um, And if anything, the major difference was there wasn't much... There wasn't much evidence for cannabis yet. We had uh, some substantial evidence for for the efficacy of psilocybin. So for a hundred days, uh, our nonprofit, um, w- which was focused mainly on advocacy, uh, also training. So training healthcare practitioners to do the therapy. We assumed that we'd get the access one way or another. So we were training healthcare practitioners, also setting up research and doing public education. Um, those were our four pillars. We first focused on. Uh, helping these patients get their request to the minister for Section 56 exemption uh, out in the mainstream. And we did that by, you know, classic lobbying, getting in touch with um, MPs across Canada, having uh, polls done um, and using social media. And lo and behold, 100 days later, uh, after asking the minister, Patty Haju, uh, to be uh, compassionate to grant these patients access, um, she did exactly that. And 100 days later, she granted exemptions for some doctors and therapists so they could also take psilocybin in their training. Um, And then a couple months after that, started granting it for non-palliative patients, um, really showing that this is a Canadian right. And that all happened until our last election that was called uh, when we got a new Minister of Health, uh, Jean-Yves Duclos. And since then, uh, Jean-Yves has introduced a new regulation um, that is much more limiting. And has been ignoring many of these patients, even the ones that had exemptions last year who are still alive. And so now we're going to court and uh, we're going to be taking the minister to court um, over uh, the prohibition of psilocybin and and claim that it is absolutely um, goes against the Charter Section 7 rights. And uh, that it needs to be treated like cannabis and there needs to be a medical access system. And I'm confident we're going to win that.
0: And last year there was significant progress that was made right, with Health Canada. Um, Towards the end of the year, I think, this was December, um, they said they were going to expand access to psychedelics for those in need. Um, And uh, I'm trying to remember what exactly it was, but there was an easier application process for people in need, and Health Canada would uh, look at those cases and, and give approval to a number of people who needed it, right? Yeah, and that was the additional, that was the
1: new piece of legislation that came in with the new minister. It was called the SAP, Special Access Program. But uh, quite frankly, it was, it's more like the slow access program because it has not been helping at all. Um, it's also, it's limited, that system. It's limited to, uh, to first of all, focusing on the doctor, not on the patient. So the doctor has to make the request. Um, they can only access synthetic Um, psilocybin or otherwise psilocybin that's um the same as the psilocybin that was used in phase one or two clinical trials so you know that sap program is normally used for people who need like cancer drugs that aren't available in canada um and instead they're using it for psilocybin so the only class of patients that can get access through there are people with treatment resistant depression um, and end-of-life distress but you know we've got a bunch of people in chronic pain with addiction um and they 're being told no they're being told that uh, unfortunately this doesn 't work and so uh, it's it's just replacing a, a crummy piece of policy with another equally crummy piece of policy
0: mm okay, interesting, yeah, for me at the time, from my limited perspective, I thought that was going to enable some kind of important shift uh, in the policy surrounding psychedelic usage for those with medical need but it's, it's interesting um to hear your perspective on that, that that the scope of that is actually very limited and and obviously you would have to find doctors who are open to this and support this and are going to vouch for their patients and going to try to get access for it which obviously takes some work as well but there has to be a baseline level of interest openness and support for this kind of thing which i i don't think your average family doctor is gonna do that just given Um, just given the lack of awareness around psychedelics in mainstream medicine, though, that is changing pretty quickly.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the most important differences in this new SAP as well is it it doesn't apply to the doctors and therapists who want to access psilocybin for training purposes, right? So now they've, you know, the government has, has denied the doctors and therapists who should be training with psilocybin if they want to, um, and they're just allowing patients. So, you know, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy is just that. It's assisted psychotherapy. It's not a drug. And this this SAP treats it like a drug. Um, but what they need is trained therapists as well. And the question comes up, well, how are therapists going to train if the best practices for any form of therapy is to go through it yourself first, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy, um, a massage therapy, internal family systems therapy, any therapy. Um, that you know uh, a therapist is doing at school um, they 're going through it first themselves before they uh, do that therapy on other patients that 's like that 's like best practices yet we're, we're, the government doesn 't seem to be applying that to psilocybin and um, it's it 's going to it 's going to limit uh, patient access
0: hmm. and i mean after talking to dana i 've been pretty optimistic and then walking into a store and having a grasp of the scene here in Vancouver with thrive downtown an amazing clinic where I've done psychedelic therapy, um, and then them offering psychedelic therapy to uh, the public. Um, it's, 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 it's obviously not the case that you necessarily need it to be legal for people to get access to it, especially in Vancouver. But I guess you're, I, I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. And, uh, about a clinic like Thrive Downtown offering guided psych- psychedelic therapy work. But but I guess what you're doing is you're, you're tackling a national issue, not just what's happening in BC or Vancouver. You want this to be legalized so people across Canada can get it, right?
1: Well, absolutely. And, you know, that's part of the problem with decriminalization in general um, is, you know, to decriminalize something is not to medicalize it. Yet that's what we're talking about, right, is the medicalization of something, allowing it, um, into the medical system. So if, if you simply say that psilocybin is no longer, uh, we're not going to punish you anymore, it doesn't necessarily mean the doctors and therapists can start using it. Um, and that's why our focus as an organization has always been on high-risk patients who need access to psilocybin with trained healthcare practitioners. Um, and so the only way we can really do that, the only way that we can reach out to people like, you know, my mom and my grandmother, I, those are the people I think of, they're not going to break the law, right? They're going to, they're going to operate within the law. So we need the law uh, to work for them. And if they want to try something because they're treatment resistant um, and if they want to try it with a healthcare practitioner, uh, that should be totally within their rights of, as a Canadian. They, they should not be punished for that.
0: Mm. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. I, I agree with you. The, the, though again, um, in Vancouver, um, you're at v- extremely low risk being prosecuted, fined, or arrested, or punished in any way for going to like, Thrive downtown and getting psychedelic therapy sessions. I mean, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that, about the fact that in, in, in one area here in Canada, um, law enforcement has explicitly deprioritized any um, punishing or uh, prosecution for psychedelic usage.
1: Yeah, I mean it's 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 blatantly unfair, right? We've got we've got like 37 million people in this country, um, and what the people in BC are allowed to go downtown and buy mushrooms and LSD and you know ibogaine and and, and stuff, ayahuasca, but over in Halifax you can't do that, or in Quebec you can't do that. Um, this is exactly like we're a we're a national nonprofit. Uh, we've got 200 healthcare practitioners and, uh, you know, thousands of, of, um, of clients that we're working with across the country. Um, so, you know, it, it's great for some of the people here in BC and, and more locally in Vancouver, uh, but totally unfair for everybody else in Canada. And, and this is why we really need, um, you know, a federal legalization because when we again talk about decriminalization, that's always done, uh, in local jurisdictions, um, what we need is the federal government to do that and and to move us towards a a system that, and I'll speak to this both, both decriminalizes and medicalizes. I I feel like that's always an important thing to say here is uh, decriminalization should happen at the same time as medicalization. Um, uh, But, you know, it doesn't always, it doesn't always happen, but it should.
0: Mm. Right. And even in Vancouver, I mean, they're offering this, but it's not, you know, because this is not openly legal um, or medicalized, uh, it's it's not the case that you know your doctor or your counselor or you can you can get advertisements online or easily find out about this clinic thrive downtown. Which uh, I will I will say this is sort of fresh news, and I don't know how much I'm exactly supposed to say about this, but I've been I've been told by the people there um, by my friend Carson to. Uh, To be a bit more uh, explicit with what's going on, given what uh, Dana's doing and given the um, impact of How to Change Your Mind, the new Netflix series, it's been creating a lot of awareness, a lot more positivity surrounding the movement. And so uh, his clinic in particular, he wants to be a little more open now that they're offering this, whereas before I would be very, very careful in talking about the clinic and what they offer. I mean, technically they're a a psychotherapy clinic that offers uh, counseling and uh all, all forms of psychotherapy, but they, they they do offer psychedelic therapy sessions, but they they're not openly just advertising it everywhere um, because this is not medicalized so 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 if that were to happen in the future, it would also benefit Vancouver. it's not like Vancouver you know where, where things are as good as they can be relative to, Uh, basically anywhere in the world, it it doesn't mean that people here who are struggling with depression, PTSD, or end-of-life illness can um, easily access these things without building a bit of a a web of connections or um, finding out about some of these uh, clinics and shops that are doing this kind of work. It's still still very new. So I I think uh, there needs to be some more government action so that these people who are innovating, and creating institutions surrounding psychedelics and their incredible healing potential can actually thrive and expand their institutions and actually broaden access to uh, these therapies for people who are really struggling in their lives. Well, for sure. And, And you nailed it right there. As you said, there needs to be
1: more government action. And I'm sure everyone can appreciate I know we spoke about this before, but everyone can appreciate that like right now in the US, what's going on with the Roe versus Wade You've got, uh, you know, Congress um, fighting the Supreme Court and they're they're going, well, who's going to fix this? Right. Who's going to who's going to change this? And they're fighting over it. And the truth is, is like we <laughs> Congress should do it. Right. It shouldn't be the Supreme Court uh, acting out the will of the people. Congress should. And similarly in Canada here, like we're bringing a court case to our health minister, whose job and responsibility it is, uh, you know, to manage our controlled drugs and substances and to, to help um, realize the rights of Canadians and to help patients who need to access substances like psilocybin. Uh, and it seems like he, he's more content with just saying, no, let's let the courts deal with this so I don't need to. And um, that's not compassionate, right? That doesn't help the patients who need access today. Um, if anything, it displays a bit of cowardice. And, and we need to move away from that political cowardice. Uh, we need courage. We need politicians who are going to look at something like cancer patients having to go to court to access their medicine uh, that's worked for them. Uh, we need politicians who look at that and say, "Uh, uh-uh, not in Canada, let's fix that.
0: Mm. Do you think the health minister, uh, he, he, so he's rejected um, what you're like, have you pitched to him what you're doing and he's rejected it explicitly or, or what's happening there?
1: Yeah, so he he's now actually rejected a number of patients, um, including a patient with terminal cancer, a patient with um, severe opioid addiction, uh, who's been using psilocybin to help manage their cravings, as well as 200 doctors, therapists and nurses. Uh, it's the first time in the last two years that we've ever got rejections. Uh, but now the minister is downright actually just rejecting them, saying saying no.
0: Mm. And so you mean first time you've gotten a rejection, like you've gotten approvals Ever. before? Ever. It's only, it's been nothing but approvals. Um, with, uh, what have you gotten approved?
1: Uh, so we've had, you know, 60, I want to say 68 patients have been approved to use psilocybin legally, uh, mm-hmm. for a year. So they have an exemption from the law. So effectively right. they're decriminalized, right? Um, we've got 19 of the same exemptions for different doctors and therapists and nurses to use psilocybin. Um, and then through that slow access program or the SAP, uh, we've gotten about 12 to 20 patients uh, access. But again, that's limited to end of life distress and major depressive disorder. Um, so, you know, that's what we've gotten the approval for. We've had tons of approvals. Um, yeah. And lots of people have been getting access. And so the question everyone should be wondering is, why is the minister discriminating, right? What, what, makes, what makes Thomas Hartle uh, more important than Jesse, right? What, why, are, why are some Canadian doctors allowed to access psilocybin for training and others are told no? Um, that's not okay, right? As a society, we're better than that.
0: And, and how many patients were rejected now?
1: Um, we've gotten rejections for probably two dozen patients, okay yeah Um, and and they just uh, keep coming in
0: and you previously you hadn't gotten any rejections
1: yeah previously the every patient uh, that we had was was being granted access there were never any rejections and i think it's because the previous minister of health patty haiju a was was a bit of an ally Right, she was a compassionate woman and a courageous one too and she'll be remembered in canada forever for what she's done here right this is her legacy um and uh, unfortunately, the, the new minister, I, I believe he will do the right thing. I really do. Uh, I believe we're going to put some pressure on him. And, and I believe that he's also compassionate, but uh, up until now has not been acting in the best interest of patients.
0: So all the approvals you had gotten previously were with the former uh, former health minister?
1: Yep. And then a few with the new health minister, but, but only a very few.
0: Mm.
1: It seems okay. like there was seems like there was a change in attitude there. And, you know, I'm very interested to see what's, what, what caused that change. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a significant amount of lobbying going on against us in this effort uh, to keep psilocybin illegal. Um, because as, so long as psilocybin is illegal, um, it means that there's a ton of money in this pharmaceutical industry that is rapidly trying to get psilocybin on the market as an approved product, Um, you know, and there are rumors that it'll cost quite a bit of money in order to get your psilocybin treatment from pharmaceutical companies.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I I was going to, I was going to talk to you about big pharma. Uh, You're, you're talking about um, big pharma, potentially like synthesizing psilocybin and getting a patent to it. So they like exclusively can sell it. Is that what you're talking about? And so there was legal access to, uh, or, or organic magic mushrooms, um, then um, that would cost or prevent or uh, discourage people from potentially buying the synthesized version, and therefore, big pharma might be at loss. Is that what you're saying?
1: Exactly. Yeah. You know, the, what, what I say is uh, the medical regulations that allow people to grow organic psilocybin, either licensed producers or patients themselves. I think it would cannibalize billions and billions, if not trillions of dollars from the potential psilocybin market uh, within the ph- nested within a pharmaceutical industry.
0: Right. And I mean, I mean potential billions of dollars. I mean, they're not, obviously, they're not doing that now. And oh, like, they are. Pardon? Oh, they are. Uh, like, well, well, not outside studies, right?
1: Well, I, I just think of like Compass Pathways, for example, right? That's a pharmaceutical company. Um, and there are many other pharmaceutical companies that are uh, creating, you know, what they're calling novel, patented psilocybin products and putting them through phase one and two, three clinical trials. Um, I think 2024 yeah. is when they're expecting to come to market. And again, it's like, you know, what's what's the point of coming to market with a psilocybin drug product when people can go out and just get the mushroom for like five bucks?
0: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I I heard about that one company you mentioned. Um, and, and, but th- these products are only being used in studies and trials right now,
1: right? Sorry, you just broke up there for a second. Can you say that again?
0: Yeah, can you hear me now? Yep, I
1: just had a phone call come in and it, it muted you there.
0: Yeah, no worries. Yeah, so uh, right now these s- synthesized psychedelic products are only being used in clinical trials, right? They're not being openly sold. Um, al- although uh, when I was at Dana's store... The mushroom, the, the medicinal mushroom dispensary. They had a few uh, analog uh, psychedelic liquids that were synthesized. They had proseline, which is close to mescaline, and they had like a. I believe they had a psilocybin and an LSD derivative. Um, well, well, LSD is already synthetic, but they but they did have psilocybin in some sort of a synthesized form already. This was the company called micro dosed yeah that's what yeah cool
1: they've um uh, just to answer one of your quick questions back there so uh, the synthetic psilocybin um is only being used in clinical trials and the sap product program
0: mm, okay yeah but um so, so these approvals that you're getting they're not for natural psilocybin uh, the old ones were so that's i mean
1: this is the confusing part right there's three different regulatory pathways in canada to access uh, illicit substances. Uh, the first is Section 56. Um, and again, that just says that, you know, uh, Rav is no longer breaking the law when he possesses and consumes psilocybin. It doesn't give you the right to buy it from any of those companies or for them to sell it to you. Uh, so that's just more like a decriminalization one. Um, SAP, that's the slow access program, is uh, the one that allows you to get access to um, these synthetics um and that's working very well for the patients who who have access right for the patients for whom there's you know ample um doctor support and and evidence for psilocybin um so they've gotten for example sygens um synthetic psilocybin sygens a great company they donated a whole bunch of psilocybin uh, to our organization and patients have been getting it for free um and then there's the uh, third option and that's clinical trials and clinical trials, of course, you, you would always use, you know, well, I'm sure you could use any uh, synthetic compound.
0: Mm. So, so previously, with the former health minister, you were able to grant access for natural psilocybin. Yeah. But but so now, now you can't, because why exactly?
1: Because they said they've replaced it with this other system, with the SAP, uh, that will get people uh, a safe supply of this synthetic psilocybin um but again only for two indications right so it's it's not a better policy <laughs> it's not at all
0: mm, it's sorry two indications meaning like the, the end of life or yeah
1: exactly
0: treatment resistant depression yeah um and uh the and, and and you disagree with that policy decision like you think it should be available naturally because of the economics of it like that it's cheaper or it's it's more accessible or why exactly oh i think it should be both i think it should be both sap and section
1: 56 and and if any i think both of them should be wider right like i'm a libertarian here i think that we need uh medical psilocybin regulations and um our organization has put together an, a, a very comprehensive 165-page document entitled the uh, APMPR, so Access to Psilocybin for Medical Purposes Regulations. I know it's a mouthful, but it's the same as the uh, Canadian Cannabis Medical Regulations. Um, you know, pretty much an exact copy, just with a couple changes to make it work for, for psilocybin. Um, that's what we need, because, you know, it should always be like, well, what should we have, right? Synthetic or not synthetic? Should be available for just these conditions or those? It's like we need something that puts the power into the doctor's hands and into the patient's hands and the therapist's hands, um, so that they don't need to to worry about you know two very limited um, you know access routes that that Health Canada think are, are good. We've we've got to do something that that fully uh, is in line with our charter rights, and and that is those medical cannabis regulations, right? Those those regulations came out of like 20 years of court battles. So uh, to avoid another 20 years of psilocybin court battles, it's like, let's just, let's just realize that psilocybin is like the same as cannabis as far as regulating it goes.
0: Mm. Right. And, uh, and, and as I was saying earlier about big pharma, um, do you think the the economics are the motivating factor for, Trying to uh, first for synthesizing psilocybin and trying to maintain some kind of exclusivity around that, as opposed to natural psilocybin. Like like if natural psilocybin was widely available, then uh, then then big pharma would not have as much to potentially gain. Is that right? I, I would I would think so. Yeah, and and you know not just I, I
1: don't want to say just big pharma, but certain uh, pharmaceutical companies who for sure have a business model predicated on um you know the the continuation of psilocybin prohibition and uh the the eventual release of a psilocybin drug product from their you know from their company right that's that's the billion dollar idea it, it certainly is right everybody who wants psilocybin after watching how to change your mind goes okay, what are my options and lo and behold, you know <laughs> like Pfizer or something has you know a psilocybin um, pill and you box, take you that box, box. sorry
0: said so I said you know there's a mushroom ad on TV and it's brought to you by Pfizer yeah <laughs> well I would support that <laughs> maybe in some, in some cases
1: yeah, if all of them took it first, maybe uh, maybe I'd support it <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um yeah, so yeah, so there's obviously economic incentives there, and obviously for like other compounds like MDMA, which has been shown to be incredibly effective for treating MD uh, for treating PTSD, especially treatment resistant uh, p t s d which it's shown greater results as Rick doblin has talked about with his map studies uh, for, for for that i mean m d m a is already a synthetic compound um i wonder what the the inner workings of big pharma are for that i mean um, i i guess that it would be in their best interest to potentially um, ha- have certain companies um, s- s- some certain limited number of companies to be able to sell and distribute it as opposed to it be just being openly available. Now that's a whole other conversation, I suppose. Well, for sure. And that's, you know, there is a difference.
1: Like let's not, you know, uh, let's, let's focus on like the difference between natural substances like cannabis and psilocybin um, and non-natural substances like MDMA and, and, uh, and LSD, right? Like it, you know, in Canada, I don't, I don't think, and maybe Ralph, like, I don't know how much of a chemist you are, but, I would not feel comfortable, you know, knowing that either I have to like synthesize my own LSD or MDMA or that my friend might be doing it. Like I want that happening at like a really, really distinguished and like competent lab. Um, but when it comes to weed and, and mushrooms, like <laughs> I'll eat my friend's mushrooms that he grew under his bed, right. Or, or his a weed that he grew in his backyard. Um, right. right. It's, it, it is different. And, and that safety profile is, is shown incredibly well in David Nutt's work. Uh, that shows you know the safety of of different substances that we use. And you know, psilocybin's the sa- probably one of the safest ones. I think on his chart, it's the safest compound we know of. And and that made it safer than tobacco, sugar, alcohol, you know, LSD, MDMA, all of those, uh, weed, etc.
0: Yeah, I've heard LSDs are pretty high up there too. Um, it's so very safe was- as well. Oh yeah, LSD is safer than I think. I think alcohol and coffee. My friend was saying, I should double check that, but I'm I'm sure he's not.
1: Alcohol is uh, the most dangerous one we know of, right? But right, right. government's got a pretty sweet monopoly on that, especially in Canada. Uh, they mm-hmm. make a lot of money from uh, you know from, from addiction and, and from people using that drug. But God mm-hmm. forbid you have mushrooms, right? And that you use those mushrooms to stop drinking so much. It's right. uh, it's pretty twisted.
0: Uh, so how is the government making money on alcohol? Well, they, they've got a monopoly
1: on it, right? It's like every time we buy alcohol, you pay your taxes to the government. And because, you know, in Canada, um, there's public health care, They say, well, the more alcohol you're drinking, the more taxes you should be paying on it. Right. Um, and that's, that's part of, uh, I believe why alcohol is more expensive in Canada is because, uh, you're paying for your future healthcare bills when you, when you drink alcohol. And it's the same for cigarettes too. Um, when you go to the US, they're much cheaper because, you know, healthcare is privatized. So uh, it really is going to come back and, and bite you in the ass. But um, in Canada, you know, you've got to pay for it. So uh, yeah, that's, it's a huge revenue driver. I mean, I, I think of even the LCBO in Ontario, where I grew up, right, that's the only place that you used to before Ford came in, um, be able to, to go get alcohol. And I think the beer store as well, but it really was like a, like a provincial and government monopoly on the sale of the most addictive substance. We maybe the most dangerous. I won't say addictive, but maybe the most addictive and dangerous substance we know: alcohol.
0: Right, and then you're saying the rationale behind that is for uh, covering future healthcare costs, like ass- assuming people are going to abuse it, which obviously is not an assumption you can make. What everybody buying alcohol?
1: Exactly. That's, yeah, that's the way that I understand a lot of the taxes on on those substances work, right? And, and similarly with what we have now on like carbon taxes, right, is like you're paying for environmental damage when, when you buy any gasoline through carbon tax, the same way as you're paying for uh, the damage to the healthcare system when you consume any, any substances that we know to be bad, like tobacco and alcohol.
0: Mm. Uh, do you want to circle back a bit to your mom? Because um, right, you were talking a little bit about her. Um, yeah, for sure. Did, did she end up getting psilocybin, or uh, how, how did
1: that exactly pan out? You no. Know, so my mom is a uh, palliative care nurse, um, and she worked in, in mental health and addictions um, oh, for, right. yeah. for for many years. She's still she's still a nurse working there, and um, you know I think this was kind of what set me on the path of of psilocybin access is. Um, you know, I'd obviously done quite a bit of psilocybin. I had read How to Change Your Mind. I'm looking at the studies and I'd come back from traveling India for a, a number of years or for a number of months um, and was like, oh, i gotta start, I got to do something with my life. I really want to try and legalize psilocybin. What do you think, mom? And showed her the studies. Uh, and she just went, all, all I can tell you is that I've got more patients that you can imagine um, that, that meet the criteria for this study. And if you could help 80% of them, you'll change Canada. And so from there, she was like, you should, you should do this, right? If, if you could replicate, if you could even help 30% of them, it would have all been worth it. Um, and lo and behold, you know, we've, we've done exactly that, helped those palliative patients of which there are, you know, probably about 3,000 every year in Canada who meet the criteria for those studies uh, being, you know, completely treatment resistant um, and having, you know, debilitating end-of-life distress. Um, these people right? Have the right to die in Canada. And frequently, that's their only option is made. Um, so why wouldn't they be able to use psilocybin? And and really, that was like, I, I remember her saying that, right? Why wouldn't you do this? Why, why wouldn't this work? Um, and when, you know, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do in life at like 24, and your mom's telling you go legalize psilocybin. I mean, that's kind of like a, a hall pass to, to go do something crazy. And, and that's that's exactly what I did.
0: Yeah, Jordan Peterson would be pretty amazed by hearing that. That's that's a hero's journey right there. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You've Got to conquer the dragon. You got you're you're going up against Goliath. That's it's pretty. It was quite the task,
1: right? Well, and I'll but, I'll have to say with a team too, right? Like yeah, I, yeah. I came out to to Victoria, BC, and met up with Bruce Tobin. Uh, I mean, he's the guy who got me out here, right? He's the the one who who led me and and who I look up to. Um, but then, too, there was, you know, a whole bunch of different doctors um, and therapists, uh, Dave Phillips and and team members, Natasha and Holly. And and we just got together as a team and we're literally like, you know, this might not work. Uh, but exactly that hero's journey is like, but we do have to, we got to try, right? Like, what what better thing in, in life to do than to take the biggest burden you can, Uh think you know knowing and believing that it's possible and then and then carry that burden and and do it and lo and behold it's 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 done amazing things for a lot of canadians and and i think the, everyone who works with Theracil, so all of the practitioners uh every time we we help a patient feel incredibly proud and happy that this is you know hopefully something that will uh, affect us one day in our lives um, and and become something available to us if we ever need it
0: mm. and for building your case for granting legal access to psilocybin for these individuals, are you going off of mostly the, the studies for psilocybin treating for for treating depression with psilocybin at, at Johns Hopkins, or are you more going off of, I believe the NYU studies that were specifically for the end of life, uh, patients who were given psilocybin. So, you know, I, I, I want
1: to say a little bit of both, but also a bit of neither of them, too, because, you know, there's so much that that we that that research is limited by. Right. Like when you set up a clinical trial, uh, part of the reason it's so expensive and so difficult is because you got to recruit patients who exactly meet your criteria. And so in any clinical trial, you might have, you know, 200 variables you're trying to control for. Right. You want to make sure that these people don't have you know, uh, any, any issue or any cancer in their central nervous system, uh, that they don't have a family member who's had schizophrenia, that they don't have any liver damage. You want to make sure they don't smoke, that they're not on SSRIs, that they're chronically depressed, right, or anxious. And it's like right there. Those are called unicorns, right? How do you find those people? Um, and so this is like not always possible to perfectly reenact what's happened in the lab and, and then put it in the real world. Um, but what it does do is it does tell you that psilocybin works for something. Um, so in in real life, you know we've had to we've had to drastically move away from uh, the exact protocols and processes and inclusion criteria that were used in clinical trials. And we've had to innovate, and you know, Rav, one of my favorite things that I don't remember who said it to me, but someone said it, and it stuck is like, you know, let's say one percent of innovation or two percent happens in the lab. Uh, the rest of the real innovation happens when you put different compounds, medicines or, or, or pro- processes, uh, you know, treatments in the hands of community uh, nurses, doctors, and physicians, because they go out there and, and they start like, they start trying things, right. They start like innovating for real uh, because they're not limited uh, in the same way that the academics are. Um, and that's what we've been doing. So, you know, one of the patients for sure is end of life has end of life distress, um, but they've also got addiction. And so the doctor goes, well, you know, normally this would exclude us and we wouldn't do this. But like, hell no. Let's see if psilocybin cures their addiction. And lo and behold, uh, the end of life distress goes away and they stop drinking too. And it's like, okay, we really got to reconsider right what what these indications are, what, what we're trying to battle here. Like at the end of the day, it's like sometimes people just need, you know, to turn the chaos of their mind into order, and psilocybin mm. seems to help do that. And once they have that order, it's like they can now deal with all of the little, you know, things in the closet, right? That the, the past trauma, the drinking problem, uh, you know, the, the issues with their family life, uh, it all starts to uh, to unwind and, and they deal with it. It's, it's beautiful.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And do you mind giving one example, one story of this and, and maybe not, um, any of the individuals that we've already talked about that I may have on the podcast, but, but cause you, you said you've grant, you've helped grant access for dozens of individuals. Is there just one that comes to your mind, one that you can share? Um, and just to, just to illustrate, just to, just to illustrate the power of using psychedelics for end of life treatment and, you know, desc- describe in, in a little bit of detail however much you want about what right. they were going through, what they were dealing with and how it helped and what the results were absolutely um you know I'll,
1: i have permission i've already shared her story a, a few times just with individuals so i don't think we've ever done it too big but uh um you know mona one of the the first patients that uh, that we supported um you know she had she had, uh, had a cancer diagnosis and a very severe one um and it caused a lot of drinking right and it caused a lot of depression um and it caused severe health issues uh you know losing weight and and you know, that comes with its own other issues. And so she's, you know, looking at her medical bills and the government's paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year uh, to put her through different treatment programs. Um, and when it comes to the end of life distress, nothing's working, right? They're treating the body, but they're not treating the mind. Um, and eventually, you know, the cancer actually goes away, which is like, you know, one in a million. It's a, for her diagnosis, it wasn't supposed to go away. Uh, but it did. But she still had this debilitating end-of-life distress. Every time she coughed, thought, oh, it's coming back. Right? Like, how do you go back to normal life after that, after thinking that you got six months left to live? Um, right. Drinking. Your your,
0: your your fear system's been hijacked. It's so totally you're, hijacked. You're, you're yeah. continually going to be fearful for when the cancer might come back or or misinterpreting um, certain signals as being deeply dangerous or harmful like that. Like, yeah, I would... That totally makes sense why she would have that kind of uh, perpetual uh, reaction mechanism to uh, um, the, the issues that she was dealing with. Uh, absolutely. No, spot
1: on. And, and so, you know, she, uh, she went to uh, one of our therapists and was like, I need, uh, I need a bloody exemption. Right? Like, I, I, I don't know what I'll do without one. No other treatments have worked. And this was someone who was spending $10,000 a month. Or, uh, you know, this treatment with the stars down in New York, uh, doing this, like, you know, every single type of therapy you could imagine. And they just said, I, I just need, I need something.
0: Sorry, therapy, um, like like psychotherapies? or
1: Psychotherapy, horse therapy, every single thing you could imagine. Flotation, you know, like uh, every therapy. Think of what $10,000 a week would get you in therapy. That's what, that's what she was spending.
0: And this was paid for the government?
1: No, this was out of pocket, right? Oh. This is... Uh, Right, the government doesn't really have the best. Uh, well, part of it is they don't have the right tools because they're not looking into psilocybin and other substances and other, you know, innovative treatments. But also, uh, they, they really just don't have uh, the funding and and, and experience and, and healthcare practitioners ready to start treating, um, you know, severe end of life distress and other other mental health issues. Right, like, I mean, kind of so- aside, is like, <laughs> when did people talk about mental health? Right, uh, before two thousand and ten, like people didn't um so it's it, it's like a new thing and uh and there's not the best uh, we don't really have the best resources so uh, anyway she she got psilocybin and she was one of the first patients to in fact she was the first non-palliative patient um to have psilocybin access and that was patty hydru that granted that uh and it was just for the same you know like i used to be out of life right i'm not anymore but my, my suffering's still here why don't i get access i want to try and live. Right, I want medical assistance in the living. Um, and Patty hyde was compassionate towards her and granted that exemption. And uh, you know, she did the treatment uh, at her home, um, taking a bunch of psilocybin. And upon taking it, had this amazing realization that she had been suppressing uh, a major, major incident in her childhood. Um, wow! Major, major incident, uh, and and had virtually never even thought about it since it had happened. And, and this is, you know, it's a, a 60-year-old woman, right, going, I haven't thought of that in since I was, since I was you know, a little 12-year-old girl. Um, and apparently she was, you know, incredibly fearful during the journey. But, you know, you go back to that hero's journey that you were talking about. She's literally saying there's a dragon over top of me and holding the therapist's hand saying, what do I do? And the therapist saying, talk to it concrete mm. it can't hurt you and she slayed that dragon and she said I'm not afraid of you anymore and and that's what literally she came out and she said you know and she took off her blindfolds and she said Bruce I ain't afraid of jack shit anymore and had totally gone through her subconscious and dealt with something that was causing her an unbelievable amount of pain uh, that was causing an alcohol addiction um, that was causing end-of-life distress. And after that, it went away. You know, like this is this is really resetting and changing your mind. Like it really is just a it turning the chaos in someone's mind that's been, uh, you know, with them for years and, and making a fine tweak that's so necessary. And we don't understand it at all yet. We just know that people have been using this for, you know, potentially thousands and thousands of years. Uh, it's always been a bit of a secret medicine for sure. Um, and maybe it should remain that way, but it's effective. It worked for this person. Um, and, you know, now a year later after their exemption has expired, they're being told, sorry, uh, you don't get your medicine again, um, which,
0: right.
1: you know, most people don't need. But some people do need a little uh, a little uh, upper, you know, after a year or two.
0: Yeah. And uh, how many grams was she doing? Do you know
1: Uh about five grams. No,
0: was are first experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's important to, uh, I think, uh, to say in this is like the people who are taking psilocybin, um, they are taking about five grams of psilocybin once. Uh, so that's the, wow. that's the yeah, most people take it once.
0: From, uh, guides and therapists I've talked to, they usually start with three because with- five can induce a lot of anxiety for people including my including somebody like myself i've only done like one one or two and that produced a fair amount of anxiety um that's kind of kept me away from it for a while um so that that's that's really interesting that you would go for for that dose yeah and, and if i may there's a uh
1: you know there's no literature on what i'm about to say uh, uh, i just want to kind of put that out there um I have a belief from the conversations I've had with, you know, probably 60 patients and hundreds of healthcare practitioners. Um, and I, I, I frequently hear, um, that psilocybin, uh, the anxiety, you know, the whole idea of like a bad trip. Um, many of them come, come across that, you know, that that's part of, part of it, right. Is like there's suffering unintentionally and then there's suffering intentionally. And people hate suffering unintentionally. It's the worst thing ever. No one wants to be suffering unintentionally, but people love suffering intentionally. And many of them believe that that's that's an issue, not with the amount of psilocybin or with its potency, um, but really it's a an issue of preparing someone. Uh, because if you're taking the substance and it's making you scared uh, and anxious, much like Mona in her story, right? If you start seeing dragons and going, what the hell's going on? You know, it's like, a good therapist, if you're well prepared, uh, sometimes it's possible to actually get through that and have that anxiety as a necessary part of the journey. Um, now, again, that's not always, I would never, you know, make any psilocybin experience a monolith. Um, but that's, that's very frequently, um, been the reason why, uh, in the John Hopkins and NYU studies, they were using the equivalent of five grams, right? 25 milligrams of psilocybin, uh, is they didn't want oh, people they, to have so, a small trip. They wanted people to have awesome. a big trip. Yeah, they they yeah. wanted people to dive in, and they wanted the full effect of the psilocybin. Thinking that you know, <laughs> in a way, it's like we want them. <laughs> we want them super high. You know, that's exactly what we want. That's where that's where this the the therapeutic process is unlocked. Is when when they're yeah. that high.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that's so interesting. I I, mean, I was dealing with a friend the other day who called me up. Um, It was his first time doing psilocybin, and he'd been going through a lot of turmoil and chaos in his life for a number of reasons. And this is his first trip, really, and it was just one gram of mushrooms. And uh, he called me up, and he was really struggling, a lot of anxiety. Um, He was, like, moving in circles. The the hallucinations were kind of scaring him. He just felt so uh, isolated and uh, just frightened from being so separated from Quote unquote reality, reality in the conventional sense. Um, and so I had to kind of help him through it and tell him to take deep breaths. And so I, I wonder for somebody like that um, if, I mean, I, I've actually heard the argument the other way, like from Sam Harris. He once said that it's possible that th- there's an issue of taking too less for a psychedelic dose. And potentially, if you're doing too less of a dose, you're ego still might be in the way and that might potentially create some other form of unnecessary suffering. Whereas if you're at three, four or five grams as opposed to one or two, then um, you'll kind of have no choice and it'll be much more profound and there might not be as much of a, a clash or kind of discombobulation from kind of potentially not being high enough or kind of maybe, sort of still being in normal reality with one foot and the other foot kind of being in the alternate hallucinatory dimension. Like I, I could see that being a potential issue or, or, or it's just likely the case for, for people who, who may have a lot of anxiety from one gram of mushrooms that maybe three or four grams might put them into a more dangerous or more scary spiral of anxiety. I don't know. It's, it's really something that I can't give any definitive answers on.
1: No, but I, I love the theory, right? I kind of agree. It's like what you want is ego death. You don't want a half alive ego, right? Clawing <laughs> at you, saying, "I want to live." You know, you want it dead. You want to get into that full that full space. And uh, I would even say my personal experience has been like that. You know, it's it's funny how how free, I mean every single party I've been into in the last like two or three years, I, and I literally mean every single one. People are taking microdoses. Right, and and I always stay stay the fuck away from them. Like microdoses just are are too weird. Like that, they get me like slight ego death. Like kind of like introspective, and I'm like, no, no, no this is not like a good time for me. Like if I have too much, so uh, I'd rather go go all the way or or have nothing.
0: Mm. Right. Do you want to touch all well on your psychedelic experiences? I mean, do you want to touch on maybe one? one or two experiences that were really crucial in your personal growth as an individual? Can
1: yeah, sure. Clear? Yeah, absolutely. Um, hmm. You know, I, the first time I ever, I ever took them was uh, just in university. Um, and I would say that from a perspective of, uh, you know, someone who went through the DARE program, I don't know if you guys have this out here in, in Vancouver, but we've got like the, you know, DARE to resist drug program. Oh, right. Yeah. It it was a paradigm shift for me because it was the first time I was ever taking a drug, you know, other than weed, which I knew was like, you know, nothing. Uh, And I was a little bit afraid. And, you know, upon taking it, it was like, holy shit. Like, thinking back to this program, what I've been taught, like they told me alcohol was terrible. Alcohol is like super fun when you use it well. They told me that like cigarettes were bad. And I was like, I like a cigarette once in a while. Um, And they told me that, you know, weed was going to rot your mind. And weed is great again if you know how to take it well and of course mushrooms was bad and mdma was bad and i started taking these going these are the greatest things ever so long as you're not abusing them so long as you know how to use them and it it made, made me really realize and that was kind of the the essence of of the journey and this is this was in you know my first year of university in residence uh, most people were gone for um thanksgiving and me and a couple of friends all decided to take psilocybin. And, you know, we looked up online how much you're supposed to take. And we saw five grams. So I think we all did. We're like, well, okay, let's do five. And then let's do a little more just just because we don't know how potent these are. So the first time we did them was like, you know, blow the top of your head off. Uh, and we all had a great time. It was, it was incredible. I think we all found ourselves like lying down at the beach for like six hours. Um, and then getting up and, and proceeding to have all of the amazing insights that come from you know the experience and that was certainly one of them was like this stuff is not bad this is like this is like secret and really really interesting and uh and definitely is that was the start of my personal experience and journey um but as for you know the more therapeutic sides uh I hope this isn't like too mushy and stuff but you know I I had a girlfriend um that I I'd, I'd broken up with when I went traveling um, and I had not done it in the best way. Um, and I was unfair to her and, and treated her unfair. But I, I didn't really think that, or I, at least I didn't know that I knew that, uh, until I had a psilocybin journey with my friends. And, you know, they're all partying on the beach, like literally dressed up in costumes in Thailand, taking a bunch of mushrooms. Um, and, and I was having a horrible time. And all I could think about was, you know, the way I had treated this person, uh, you know, my, this past relationship, what I had done wrong. And I thought about it long and hard and like for an hour was just in this dark place. And my mind was just telling me you have to deal with this right now. And I dealt with it. And I like literally like I love writing and I, I like put together a little like thing that I, I you know, a little like speech or uh, or letter that I'd, I'd send her. And the second I'd put it down on paper and, and realized the mistakes I had made and, you know, written this apology and, and kind of come clean, like all I can say is like, I I thought that it had been a cloudy day. It wasn't. The whole day was beautiful. But after I wrote that down and finished it, like the sun came back out and I had an amazing time. Like I dealt with something and it was like, holy crap, this is powerful. It can achieve things. Uh, Again, if you, you know, have, uh, you know, if you work with it, right. If you're not afraid to confront that thing, because I mean, alternatively, right. Maybe I could have like gone to bed and just thought, oh, this is terrible. Um, But I really think there's a willingness in battling the thing that you're afraid of, right? And in, in, in heading, going head on into the pain. And I think psychedelics have a really, really way of energizing and helping people do that.
0: Mm. And you said you were writing this down while in the trip?
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. How many grams is that? Do you
1: remember? Um, I don't know then. It's funny. Okay. The mushrooms we got in, in Thailand, we'd go get them wrapped up in newspaper and they were like fresh. They weren't even the dried ones. So mm. we just eat these huge things. And they tasted like, just like mushrooms, honestly, like cramini or something, maybe a little different. They're kind of gross. Um, but I had no clue how much I was taking. We just kept eating them
0: until we you know, felt the effects. Wow. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty incredible. And, uh, and you have to go by 7, is that right? I just wanted to be careful of your time. Yeah, exactly. So we got like 15 more minutes sure. here. Yeah, sounds good. Um, I also just want to return a little bit to the, uh, the individual Mona you were talking about. So she, so she took it, um, and did she, did she do counseling afterwards and, and how, you know, how was she like, you know, six months or a year after that initial treatment? Was she still struggling or were the, um, was she, was she able to fully integrate those lessons in her life? Was she able to process that event from childhood? Yeah, for sure. So any of like,
1: I I like this, we are a very clinically focused organization we put patients and healthcare practitioners first and and are as uh, you know academically informed as possible so our training program um we're utilizing every piece we can from both the studies um and then just uh, you know the the psychedelic culture right like that means we've got two therapists we do you know a number of hours of post-treatment uh therapy preparing people for their journey which is why i think her journey went so well um And then during the journey, there's two sitters, uh, a male-female dyad in the room, both keeping an eye. And then afterwards, there's, you know, integration. And integration is the most important part of psychedelic psychotherapy. Uh, It's the one that, and I say most important, maybe not because it's the most important, but because it's the one that always gets ignored. And people don't do it right. Uh, So let's just put, you know, a bit of like, (laughs) let's just highlight it for a second. Say it's so, so important that people integrate well. And that they take their time to integrate um, and that the therapists stick around and help them integrate because she had really good integration, you know, and had a, a number of therapists, had two therapists, uh, a primary and secondary that were, were very, very interested in helping her. And mostly because she was one of the first Canadians to get access. Um, so, uh, yeah, that treatment went well. And I think uh, she did like one more treatment uh, uh, a year later on, on her exemption or just under a year later. Um, but has been doing fantastic. You know, back traveling up and down to Mexico and stuff, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just doing fantastic. She even she, she even started working again. Came on the the board for a short amount of time. Wow. Do
0: you yeah. know how her second treatment went?
1: Um, I, she said to me just as well as the first one. She she had some other stuff that she wanted to deal with, some family stuff. I I didn't get the full report because the first one I've I've got an entire interview. I went down, sat at her house, so it's. I've actually seen it a couple of times. We never published it. It's just sitting there kind of in the archives. Um, mm. But the second one, I just got more of the kind of the Coles notes, uh, you know, did another treatment. And at that time, I mean, there, there are just so many treatments that have been done by the organization. I, I can, It's di- difficult to remember all of them.
0: Right. And the first one you did, you're saying it's in the archives as in like you were recording the, like the, the psychedelic session. So we've, we've recorded a few sessions.
1: Um, this one wasn't recorded. This was after the journey, after a couple months of integration, as uh, she invited me, um, to record the entire story and, and get it all written down. So I went there with my camera and my microphone and uh, have a very, very high quality and, and long interview, um, oh. you know, about her, her experience.
0: Wow. <laughs> have you used that anywhere? Have you
1: publicized that? No, unfortunately. I, I think, uh, yeah. No, we, we haven't. And it might even be a bit outdated because I think in it, there's a lot of like, you know, the minister needs to grant these and uh, it's talking about an old minister too. But uh, but mm. I think it's still, you know, a beautiful piece of, of, of film, of, of video. Uh, and quite frankly, I think it's, you know, it's like a Canadian heritage moment, right? This is like one of the first Canadians coming out about their legal psilocybin journey and an effective one and, and a non-palliative patient. Like it's it's incredible.
0: Mm. I feel like that, that there's a lot of untapped potential there. I mean, that, like, that sounds really interesting. I'd want to watch that. I mean, yeah, well, you've inspired me. Maybe, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll send it
1: over to you. I'll, I know I've got permission to. Um, so I'll send it over and uh, let me yeah. know what you think and if there's anything to be done with it because uh, I, I think it's really just something that, that deserves to be seen, deserves to be shared.
0: Mm. And um, in that interview, did you talk about um, her trip and what that you, taught her?
1: Yep. She was very, very open um, about the, about her entire experience. Yeah. And you've done more of these? Um, There's so, well, one of them is, has been done. We sponsored um, Dosed 2. Oh, right. uh, Right. And that's a movie coming out about um, Lori Brooks uh, and her story. Um, And so we helped her get her exam. In fact, she was, she was patient number two. You know, she was the, the first of the first four that, that I started working with to get these exemptions uh, she was, she's amazing, you know, very, very public about her, her journey and stuff. And, uh, you know, that's what we need in Canada is, is advocates. And it's difficult to find, right. You need a person who's like dying of cancer and also willing to, uh, you know, come out in front of everybody in Canada and, you know, demand access to a mushroom. It's like, that's a hard thing to find. Most people who are, are dying of cancer, right, have other things to worry about and are not, uh, don't quite have the vigor um, and, and indefatigable nature of, of, you know, of Thomas and Laurie, right, to keep on butting heads with the minister and saying, you know, minister, give me my access, give me my access, but um, she did, and she's, she's become an amazing advocate.
0: Mm. And is she still battling end-of-life illness? Um, she is, you know. Uh,
1: yeah, she's she is, but she's she's still doing well. I saw her uh, the other day, and I think um, her and her husband are actually looking at opening up their own, uh, you know, retreat place where people can come and uh, relax and have some mushrooms. So, uh, oh, really? I really, I, yeah, I really wish her the best. I I think she's she's going to do amazing things, and and just her name. I mean, people in Canada should watch Dose too, and they should realize that you know this is the this is the mother, right? That that made this legal in Canada. Uh, and, and, and I know that millions of people will benefit from what she did.
0: Mm. Uh, like sh- she made it legal as in, I mean, it was, it was your organization that rallied for this, right? Yeah.
1: I, I mean, I, it was our organization, but nothing's done right. No, I and team, this is totally like we helped yeah. the patients get their message out there. And, and that was, you know, Mona and Thomas and Laurie, and I could keep going, but the Mona's, Mona, Thomas and Lori were the first three. Right. They were the first ones to, uh, you know, to, to talk with me and, and, you know, think I wasn't crazy and to talk with Bruce and, and say, you know, that this is a good idea um, and to put themselves in front of Canada and say, you know, look, it, I'm, I'm dying and, and I want this access. And again, just such a hard thing. Right. Like, imagine having to do that. Uh, and I know you're a pretty outgoing guy. I mean, you got a, you got a damn podcast and you write. Uh, but a lot of people are, are a bit shy. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. So these are the folks that you know kind of done it without them
0: yeah that's that's amazing and this dose too are you advertising this is this going to be covered by media outlets have you planned anything for yes. promoting
1: the event um as an organization like we'll we'll post about it a bunch on social media we'll also all be there for the um uh, for the viewing or the screening um and we'll be you know uh, doing a question and answer at the end and personally, I'd like to use it as an opportunity to fundraise for our legal challenge. Uh, because, you know, back to before we, we close here, right, let's talk about what's the most important thing. And, and the reason I, I love the timing of everything is like, we've got this movie Dose Two coming out, we've got How to Change Your Mind, the series hitting Netflix. Everybody <laughs> who watches Netflix, right, is going to at least be interested in that show or hear about it. Um, and at the same time, we're, we're launching our court case next week. Um, the Charter Challenge, that is going to be the single biggest court case uh, in Canada, perhaps in the last 20 years um, r- relating to, to medical access. Right. I, I, I think of well, maybe not 20, but I think of, you know, up there with with medical assistance in dying with Parker and Allard, right, that the legalized um, uh, medical marijuana. Uh, it's going to be huge. Right. It, it's it's questioning the prohibition of psilocybin and demanding that that goes against our charter of rights and freedoms. Uh, And when that I'll say when, because we, it's the same case, we know it's going to win when that case uh, concludes, whether we have to fight for the next two years or whether the minister of health realizes that it's a fighting or a losing battle and, and instead decides to act compassionately um, and, and to do this through the government, not through the courts, either way, uh, we're going to have medical psilocybin regulations um so we just need to pay for the court case that's all we need to do we've got the legal team they've done a bunch of free work we just need to make sure that they're prepared to take this to court um our organization is going to continue lobbying make sure it doesn't it doesn't draw out but uh but that's the most important part or most important thing that we're working on these days is Mm -hmm. making sure that our our courts um can help because uh, i I wrote a tweet here today and I, i quite liked it um you know, if the minister does not respond with compassion, the courts will respond with justice. Uh, mm. Which ones it going to be? Right.
0: And you're filing this lawsuit next week.
1: Yeah, that's that's the plan. I mean, if all goes really well, it'll be done tomorrow. But uh, you know how these things are; it's got to be checked over by a bunch of people. I, I would I would expect that you know by mid next week it'll be it'll be launched.
0: Mm. And so so you're you're suing the so you, to to put it precisely you're suing the federal government for prohibiting the 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 broad use or the specific medical use of psilocybin
1: Uh the specific medical use of psilocybin. Okay. Um that's where it starts, right? And if if people want to think about more broad use, right? More like better than well, uh yeah. the first thing I would just say is like you know, I think even medical is like a a poor but necessary um categorization of of you know of access right what is medical yes is is that just end of life or is that like you and i being like yo we're having a pretty shit time at work these days like yeah uh i've got a very minor sense of like anxiety can i use psilocybin uh you know look around in in our friend circles who hasn't had a bit of anxiety or depression um we wouldn't call it medical we you know slump back to that terrible world word recreational um but but really i think it'll it'll start paving the way towards you know a a liberalization of of all substances i think of all of these psychedelic substances i think Mm. this is where it starts Mm.
0: and you're gonna build this case using like scientific studies using um is there anything else you're going to be using at your disposal to build up this case
1: yeah i mean (laughs) this case has been uh, in the works since two thousand and seventeen, right this is every single patient, all of the evidence that we have, all of the evidence from clinical studies this has been been in the works for the last three years or three or four years
0: so all, all the anecdotal evidence for the yeah
1: client had everything all of these patients right This okay. is all evidence every time the minister delayed patients every time a patient died waiting to get access, these are all going to the courts, and it 's going to go to a judge, and the judge is going to say is this what we want in Canada, right? Does this follow the charter? (laughs) And this is where like federal government is in for something. If they think they're going to win this case Uh, and they're in for something. If, if they think that it's wise to, to fight these patients for the next two years, it's not right. Mm -hmm. We've got to do the right thing. And, and I, I do believe that Jean-Yves Duclos will do the right thing. I think he's a compassionate man. I think he's a smart man.
0: Mm. And, and, and what, what is exactly the crux of your argument for this? That like, is it, that it's violating human rights or violating medical autonomy yep.
1: or, or what exactly? Specifically, we're saying that it's violating the same rights that the prohibition on cannabis was violating for cannabis patients. And that is Section 7 rights. Uh, so I encourage anyone to go look at the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, just like look it up um, and look at Section 7, right to life, liberty and security of persons. Uh, and that has been uh, seen many times in the, in the eyes of the courts uh, that, you know, if, if for whatever reason, uh, patients don't have safe access to, uh, you know, a, a substance that they're using as a medicine, right? and that's been applied again to cannabis, to heroin, uh, to medical assistance in dying, um, that, that you know, we're violating their charter rights. So yeah, you know, we're, we're all lucky to have the charter rights and freedoms that Justin Trudeau's father put together back in 1982. Um, that's the thing that's protecting us here. And that's the thing that's, uh, that's the reason that psilocybin should be medicalized and, and legalized
0: mm. so you're specifically using that one life liberty and security of the person
1: exactly yeah
0: and are you targeting like like the liberty element of that or how are you exactly all three of them
1: all three of them right liberty to make your own healthcare decisions mm-hmm. uh right that the right to life right to be able to to like one of the patients said right i don't want medical assistance in dying i want medical assistance in living this is limiting my life right i don't get my li- i don't get to live my life if I'm struggling with depression and psilocybin is, is my, is, will work mm. for me. And it did. And then, and then security of persons too, right. is like, how secure are you as a person? Uh, if you've got to go into the street to get your medicine, right? It, it, the answer is not at all. You could be arrested. You could have, uh, you know, a poisoned uh, supply. Uh, mm. These are our rights for a reason. They make sense for a reason. They were well thought through. Um, and, and all three of them applied access to psilocybin. So that's our yeah. clause right there, right? Section seven
0: right That. that's That. yeah that's really persuasive and And we know those rights have been violated especially with vaccine mandates that's a whole other conversation i've, I've been writing a lot about that but, but similarly there um we see government overreach
1: uh, yeah e- exactly and and this is just where you know that charter is uh <laughs> it's a hell of a document and we need to live by it and um you know, it, very often it's it's too easy to look at the whole, right? To look at Canadian society and to lose focus on the individual. And that's why these court cases are always about individuals, right? Individual rights and freedoms are important, right? So are group rights and freedoms, but uh, we, in the West, we prioritize the individual and it's for a damn good reason, right? Right. Uh, right.
0: Uh, before we go quickly, I just, one other question popped in my head and you mentioned this, I think, in a phone call the other day, but you were saying that Um, everybody who you've gotten help uh, granting access to psilocybin everybody has benefited from it tremendously there were no like people who got access to it who didn't see any substantial effects um i I would say over 80 percent. so
1: you know our uh, the observations that we have again anecdotal like we'll be putting out research soon it may take a while um but we've we've pretty much seen uh, right in line if not better than what much of the research has been showing as far as, uh, you know, uh, drastically, um, increase, or drastically better scores um, on, on any of their tests. You know, clinically significant decreases in anxiety, depression, demoralization. Um, of course, there are some people, right, that psilocybin just don't. In fact, there are some people that take the psilocybin and, and nothing happens, even 5, 10 grams. We don't know why. Um, and, and then there
0: are... There nothing are, happens as in, like, not that the trip isn't eventful or lots of stuff doesn't happen, but as in, um, it, it doesn't nope. any significant positive impact? No, just no trip at all.
1: No psychological effects from it.
0: On five grams of mushrooms?
1: Yeah, there's a patient that, we, uh, that I know of that has to take 50 grams of psilocybin just to, just to feel a little bit.
0: What the hell? 50 grams? <laughs> 50 grams, yeah. That's insane. He must be yeah. some weird biological anomaly. That makes no well, sense. And that's just it, right? Is 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 everybody's an
1: anomaly in their own way, in their own right, yeah. um, and and so it it doesn't work for everybody. I I think that's an important thing to get through. It does not, um, but uh, anything that that works on more than fifty percent of people is worth exploring, and this works on far more than fifty percent. Um, and eighty percent of how many people? Uh, of about sixty-eight, so almost come you know sixty-eight for yes or section fifty-six, and then probably another. A dozen to 20. I know some other organizations are doing this too. Um, So, uh, you know, in total and the healthcare practitioners, you know, over 100 Canadians have accessed legal psilocybin uh, and the results have been astonishing. Mm. Yeah, I I really hope we'll be able to get more. You know, we just launched a project called Project Solace um, and we're working with a number of um, different uh, licensed producers of psilocybin. Uh, They've helped, they've been very generous and given us some donations uh, so that we can actually run studies on these patients uh, showing the effects of of this of the product and their product on the patients who are accessing it.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And, and media coverage has been good on this for you? Uh, it's It's been okay. Uh,
1: you know, Some news organizations have been more interested than others. Uh, others have said that there's no interest at all, uh, which I think is BS. Um, I think this is a major Canadian issue, but I take that on myself and it's my own responsibility to uh, make sure that uh, to persuade people that it's, it's important.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, keep, keep doing what you're doing. I, I think this is incredibly uh, important advocacy and I, I I fully support it and I will do whatever I can to help with my connections and with my writing abilities. I hope to amplify and promote what you're doing um, and, and even lo- look in my web of Uh, connections and see who might be potentially interested in that i'm thinking of jordan peterson definitely i think would be interested in supporting what you're doing in some way um i'll I'll try and potentially make a connection surrounding that i I think that would be huge getting on a platform like that hey uh, absolutely you know like
1: what we need in canada is we need this to be something that the minister cannot ignore Right. Because if the minister and the other politicians can ignore it, then it gets swept under the rug and the courts deal with it. And like in two years, you know, the court case comes through. Um, what we want is this to be a major issue that the minister realizes, you know, is going to lose uh, him a lot of respect. And we want, uh, you know, a bit of peer pressure, you know, better to have, better of peer pressure than no peers at all. And uh, I, I want to be one of his peers and I want to, I want to help him do the
0: right thing. Right, right. Okay. So, so what you're trying to do is create a lot of public, awareness that's using the various cultural political social centers powerhouses within the canadian landscape and try to pressure the minister to uh to allow what you're doing is that right Uh, absolutely
1: and you know so i i hope that we can get some help from like pancreatic cancer canada and the canadian psychedelic association and you know maps canada and and all these other folks who are pushing psychedelics um or Mm -hmm. pushing might not be the right word but uh exploring them right trying to help people get safe access i hope this is cause for a lot of collaboration a lot of people to come together and say you know let's do this let's get so legalized yeah yeah
0: and and, and, I, and i mentioned jordan peterson is well obviously i'm connected with him but just you, you need more like rock solid like scientific thinkers not just kind of like like not just psychedelic advocates but people who operate yeah. in, in the kind of mainstream psychology or neuroscience space Somebody like a Jordan Peterson, who's a clinical psychologist. I guess he's a major Canadian example. I mean, I mean, if if, if Sam Harris was Canadian, or if, uh, or I mean, if Joe Rogan was Canadian, or, or, or even some of these American people too, um, you know, a- amplifying your message to, to them, I think, uh, could possibly be helpful as well. Well, for sure. And there's you know, there's similar things going on right now in the U.S.
1: with their right to try. Um, they're they're challenging the DEA. So, I mean, uh, I think there's an important there's an important aspect of getting into the uh, the U.S. market too, or U.S. media, um, and letting the Americans know that they actually can influence the, uh, you know, the Canadians, right? If they can, they can say, "Hey, we want this too," right? And if if the Canadians see the Americans are fighting this battle too, again, there's this camaraderie between our two nations that should be able to legalize psychedelics uh, for people who are dying, for people who have medical needs. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I'm also thinking about people in political office. I I do have some connections, actually, with uh, both the PPC and the Conservative Party, um, individuals who support my work. I don't necessarily support them uh, in any kind of open way, Um, but uh, I, I do have connections there, and I wonder what they might think of that, people in the Conservative Party especially.
1: Yeah, well, that's why we went with these medical regulations, too, is this is something that any Conservative should adopt, right, Pierre? Pierre said he wants Canada to be the freest country on earth, right? Um, let's start with our charter freedoms, right? Let's start with 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 freedom to make your own medical decisions. Let's start with uh, you know access to to psilocybin, right? We're not talking about you know just uh, we're not talking about opening up shops all over Canada. We're not talking about right uh, legalizing it. Uh, we're talking first about medicalizing it, making it available to people who need it for medical purposes. That's a conservative,
0: right. yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree, and and I have connections with uh, Candace, I believe her last name is Bergen. She's the leader of the uh, some part of the Conservative Party. She follows me on Twitter for some reason, um, and I know she's oh, read cool. some of my work. Yeah, I, I wonder what if I could make any use of those connections, potentially reach out to people within that party, um, or even the PPC, which is more of a Libertarian party. Uh, I, I wonder what impact that might have.
1: Hey, absolutely. Let's let's get some of these. Yep. Connections going, and uh, you know it, the the politicians they've got a huge role to play here too, right? Like they're the ones who are going to take this to the minister.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, it was great talking to you, Spencer. It's really good talking with you as well, Rav. Uh, really looking forward to staying in touch and uh, hopefully working on some you know additional projects and and, and writing yeah. pieces. I think there's there's lots for us to do here.
0: Yeah, I'm very interested in writing about this and promoting this more in any way I can, and. Uh... Uh, of course, meeting you at the uh, Dose Two event in Vancouver, which is uh, I believe August second or August fifth. Yep, yeah, one of those two dates. I, yeah. I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, yeah early August. Yeah, I, I look forward to, to meeting you, and, and hopefully, Gilbor Mate and Dennis McKenna, and, and a bunch of other people um, that I'll introduce you as well. Carson Kavari, uh, director of Thrive Downtown, who's doing psychedelic therapy as well. I think uh, it'll be it'll be a good event to make some connections and broaden our networks. Wonderful! I can't yeah. wait. All right. Thanks for your time and uh, have a good day. Yeah, you too, Rob. Take it easy. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.